This message first aired on the radio on January 16th, 2004. Today we begin our study of the first epistle to the Corinthians, and as we do, we're taken with the thought of the way that this church in Corinth was begun, and we're also a bit taken with the nature of the city of Corinth itself and the work of the apostle and how it came to pass in God's perfect plan that the Corinthian church would even begin. So in order to get ourselves a good foundation for the study of this epistle, we're going to talk a little bit today about the nature of the city of Corinth, and we're also going to look back in the book of Acts and see how it is that this church began. And when we come to the book of Acts, if we'll look at the 18th chapter, we can see how it was that the city of Corinth and the apostle Paul came to know one another. And in Acts chapter 18, the first verse we read as follows, After these things Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Well, he's away from the biggest city and the most important city, we might say, in the ancient Greek empire, now absorbed by Rome. The city of Athens, marked with its brilliant men and its university there and the the great learning, and Paul was a bit successful, not very successful in the city of Athens, as he came really to his own in certain ways. Paul, being a a notable academic himself, being known as Saul of Tarsus, came to Athens, challenged the thinking of the Athenians. They didn't take him very seriously, but some believed, and certain men claimed to him. And then he came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, verse 2, Acts chapter 18, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. Because he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And so here we see the affinities that led the Apostle Paul to the believers with whom he will be associated in Corinth. We see that he came from Athens to Corinth, and he needed to do what men need to do. He needed to earn a living. I think this is a much overlooked aspect of the Apostle Paul. I think it's overlooked on purpose. I think preachers today find it very convenient to overlook the fact that the Apostle Paul had to earn his own living. I think today also, further, if most preachers had to earn their own living and preach along with it, there would be a lot fewer preachers, and maybe there'd be a lot better preachers. I think there probably would be. But in any case, he found Aquila. Here's a a devout Jew, and this fella had been run out of Rome. He'd been run out of the precincts of Italy by the Roman Emperor Claudius, who had run Jews out of Rome, and he ran them out probably for political reasons, probably for some good political reasons. The Jews were constantly fomenting insurrection, constantly agitating, and also probably for some bad reasons because of the anti-Semitism that is in the world because of the hatred of the Jew by Gentiles for the sake of the Lord. But in any case, Aquila and his wife, Priscilla, found themselves in Corinth, dispersed out of Rome by force, and probably impoverished because of that. Anytime you get run out of a city and you get forced out, I'm sure you sell at a loss and move in haste and take a substantial financial beating. And the Apostle Paul had come across financial times of need, apparently, because he found himself needing to make some tents. And so these affinities... This work affinity, it tells us they were of the same craft in verse 3. They're of the same technical skill. And he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila and wrought or worked, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And I'll just comment a little bit here now about working. The Apostle Paul could work with his hands. He had those skills. The rabbis taught in those days, and I'm sure the Apostle Paul among them taught. Well, he does teach in 
First Thessalonians and again in Second Thessalonians, that our men, our young men, especially young men, should learn skills with their hands. They should be able to apply a craft so that they can profess an honest living. And the apostle was able to make an honest living. I know all the rage today is to make sure that your sons and daughters go to college. You do not see that admonition in Scripture. You see the admonition in Scriptures that ours work with our hands, professing honest trades, providing things of value in the sight of all men, as it tells us in the book of Romans. Here the apostle had his craft, he had his trade, learned in his youth. He was able to work with material and make tents, and I'm sure he had to spin his own material by his own fabric and then fashion it into a tent. This is what he did here. In fact, the rabbis taught in those days that if a man didn't have a trade, he would grow up to be a robber. And indeed, that's very possible that that's the case. So there's some admonition. Now verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Gentiles, or and the Greeks, or the Hellenists. Now, this is a mind of the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went, he would first go to the Jews. And that's what we found in Romans 1, verse 16. Here at BibleStudy.net, that's one of our guiding scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. He went to the Jew first. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So every Saturday, he found himself in the synagogue, and he is now trying to reason with the Jews and the Greeks, those who would also come from the Hellenistic world. And he's in Corinth here. This is a metropolitan city. It's a very large city in its day. Today, and of course, since that time, Corinth has become a city of no reputation and of no significance whatsoever. But at that time, Corinth, a port city, a grand city, a great port city, and being a wayfaring city, a city that had a port, was influenced by the visitation of people from far lands who would make their stay over while their ships landed and either unloaded their cargo or laded their cargo, and then Corinth would be a layover place for sailors and those ship-faring men who would then turn the community into something of their own influence, and that would be of course, something of a a city of scoundrels, we would say, and of low activity. Well, here the apostle went into the synagogues that were established. It says he was persuading or sought to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Well, literally this says he was pressed in word. The apostle was urgent with his message. He considered that his message had to get out. He was a man who believed that he had a message, and his own testifying was required of himself by himself. And he began to become very persuasive, and of course, that would arouse the reaction that followed. It says, when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own hands, I am clean, and from henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Now here the apostle brings the word of God to the Jew first. The Jews, now that hearing the apostle preaching that Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus was their Messiah, that he is the Messiah, they began to resist. The King James Version says they oppose themselves. They begun to become obnoxious to the truth after they oppose themselves. Of course, they're also opposing him. And he doesn't care to argue with them. He doesn't care to continue in that sort of contention with them. He shakes his clothes and says, Your blood is on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, this is something that the apostle was beginning to do. 
When the Jews no longer would receive the word, he turned to the Gentiles. This, of course, a great judgment against the Jews that God's apostle was now taking the word of God to the Gentiles instead of to them because they would not receive it. It says, He departed thence and entered into a certain man's house, named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Now here's a fellow whose structure, they shared a wall like a townhouse. The synagogue and his house shared a wall. And so Paul set up teaching right next to the synagogue, if you can imagine. And the Gentiles now welcome to come in and hear him preach in that house right next to the synagogue. And of course, those of the synagogue who listened to him were also coming next door to hear him, including Crispus, verse 8, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized or immersed. So the apostles creating a big uh, storm here. There are those who believe him. There are those who oppose him. Those who believe him are now being immersed in water and giving their testimony as evidence that they've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then spoke the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, verse 9, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall sit on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city." Now the promise of God that he will have success in this city. Many people the Lord has who will believe on him. And don't worry about your personal safety because no man is going to hurt you. Now we're going to see that they try, but he has God's word that they will not succeed. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And this is as long as we see the apostle sitting still after he was called out of Antioch to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the longest he stays in one place that we can find as a free man where he stays 18 months in the city of Corinth preaching the word of God and teaching the word of God as many come to believe. Verse 12, And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Now this Gallio is no small fellow. This Gallio is, is a man very well connected. He's the brother of Seneca. Seneca was the teacher of Nero. He was the one who schooled him as a boy. Seneca, a great mind uh, known in Roman culture, this is his brother Gallio, and when he becomes deputy of Achaia, of course this means that Corinth has a senate seat in Rome, very prominent city, and obviously a, a political promotion. When this guy comes in, I think the Jews, if I read this correctly, the Jews find this to be their opportune moment to move against the Apostle Paul. And so they make insurrection, it says, or they have a single political movement against him, against Paul, and bring him to the judgment seat. Now this is a bema. This is the judgment seat. This is where judgment is pronounced. They're dragging him to be judged as a criminal. And these were set up to judge criminals. There would be three stands. One would be a stand for judgment or the judgment seat where Gallio would sit. And there would be two seats alongside, one for an accuser to sit and make accusation, one for an accused to sit and receive accusation. And so the question here now, will Gallio take up this manner of judgment? And they brought him up here and they said, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And they mean, of course, their own law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked lewdness, O you Jews, reason would that I would bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and of your law, you look to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And here Gallio refuses to take the judgment seat. 
and he refuses to hear the accusation against the Apostle Paul. This, of course, God's divine intervention. And he drove them from the judgment seat. So Gallio dispersed this crowd. Now, he has to push them out. He has to run them out. He's got at his disposal policemen, and he uses his police power to run these Jews away from the judgment seat. Then it tells us, verse 17, Then all the Greeks, now these are the Gentiles hanging around, all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and he obviously is the fellow that replaced Crispus, who was the one who believed, and his whole household. And so this fellow Sosthenes, the new leader of the synagogue, it says the Gentiles took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, verse 17, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of these things. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while. So here's what it got the Jews, the Lord protecting Paul. Their leader, Sosthenes, got a good severe beating at the judgment seat. And I just want to tell you that this is a reference in the scripture to a judgment seat. Now, it wasn't a lawful beating here, but somebody got a beating at one. A judgment seat is not necessarily some kind of a award stand. It is a seat of judgment where judgment is pronounced. And I'll just remind us, by the way, that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive good or evil for the things done in our Christian lives while we live in these bodies here below. And here you see that Sosthenes, albeit not lawfully, got himself a good beating at that judgment seat. Now, in case you feel too sorry for this Sosthenes, when we come to 1 Corinthians and we begin to study this epistle, you're going to see that he is our brother Sosthenes at the time of the writing. And so here's a beating of Sosthenes that beat some sense into him and did him a little bit of good. And we'll see him at the judgment seat of Christ later on. And I trust he'll be bold at that time. And I hope I will be too. We'll be back after this brief announcement to dig into the epistle of 1 Corinthians. From its inception, we see that the Corinthian church was founded with prophecy, the Lord giving Paul prophecy. It was founded with the apostles' method of the Jew first and also the Gentile, and so we're going to have a good representation of both Jews and Gentiles. It was founded really with the work and home of Aquila and Priscilla, and we found also Crispus, and now we're going to see that this Sosthenes, who got his beating, he's also part of the Corinthian church. A fine amalgam, isn't it? Amalgam of former devout people, former opponents of the gospel, former Jews, former Gentiles. The church in Corinth made up of a very well-rounded group of rejects and those who have changed their mind and rich and poor alike, just like any church of Jesus Christ really ends up being or should be. And now as we come to the epistle to the Corinthians, we're going to see that this beginning, this marvelous beginning, this controversial beginning, had a controversial follow-on. And of all the churches that are selected for a couple of epistles to be recorded in writing for our benefit, here this motley bunch in Corinth is one. And we have two epistles to the Corinthians here, First and Second Corinthians. And we're going to see that this is a church filled with problems, filled with difficulties, filled with controversies that pertain to matters of this life. 
And in the canon of Scripture, 1 Corinthians follows the book of Romans because in Romans we had that doctrinal treatise. And I trust that you can avail yourself, by the way, of our time through the book of Romans. If you weren't able to listen consecutively to it as we covered it through the radio broadcast, you can go online in the archived broadcasts. You'll see there the entire book of Romans, our series on it, which took us several weeks. And if you can't listen online and you'd like to have a copy of tape or CD, just click on the link there on the website, and we'll be happy to prepare those to you and send them out to you free of charge for your listening enjoyment. Well, here the Corinthians have written to the Apostle Paul, and his epistle here is an an answer to some of their questions. He's giving them a lot of advice. He's dealing with reports that he heard. We believe that now the Apostle went from Corinth to Ephesus, and we believe, and tradition teaches us, and if we agree with it, that the Corinthian epistle is written while Paul's at Ephesus and written to the Corinthians there. We also make note that during the 18 months that the Apostle Paul was in Corinth is the likely time that he wrote the epistle to the Romans. Well, let's just look here now at the first part of the first chapter, the first epistle to the Corinthians, verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is in Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have this wonderful salutation, and it's a typical salutation of the apostle calling himself an apostle, always accrediting the Lord's purpose in his life as his reason for his apostleship. He says it called an apostle through the will of God. And here he associates now with Sosthenes, who's with him, and Sosthenes the brother. Here Sosthenes apparently traveled from Corinth with the apostle, former head of the synagogue, no doubt a notorious Christian of good reputation in Corinth. And then he says, Under the church is at Corinth to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be sanctified in Christ Jesus? Well, the word sanctified means to be set apart for God's use to set apart. We are made holy by God. That is to say, we are made fit for use. God sanctifies his people. He sets them apart for use. That's part of what God does when we're born again. He not only saves us from the penalty of our sins, but he sets us apart as instrumentalities or vessels to use in service. And that's sort of a bonus to salvation. We're saved from our sins, and we are set apart for use by God in a spiritual war in which we find ourselves conscripts. And it was no surprise to the Apostle Paul that he was in a spiritual war, for everywhere he turned, he had opposition and he had difficulties. And here he says, this is to those sanctified in Christ in Corinth, called saints. And that's our vocation or our calling. This word call, the word we have, our word vocation based on saints. A saint is not somebody who is especially sanctified. A saint is not someone who has especially attained. A saint is the ordinary word for a Christian. And here it says, With all who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, theirs and ours. And I think this is something else that we need to understand. We are not alone. Even within the context of our local church, we are not alone. 
But there are local churches in every place where God's sanctified people, his saints, call upon the same Lord who has the same purpose in mind for all of us. He may have different specific works for each of us. In fact, he does. I believe God has specific works for each individual believer. I also believe that God has special work and a special call to every church of God, every local church of God. I'm a member of a local church in Omaha, Nebraska, Millard Community Church, which, by the way, sponsors this radio and internet broadcast. You, as a child of God, set apart by God for his own use, ought and are commanded and need to be a member of a local church, which God has in mind for which each one God has in mind a purpose. And as local churches, though we not be associated or amalgamated with one another in any way, though we are independently incorporated underneath our Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't use that as a legal term, but incorporated, that is, in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, locally expressed, we have a fellowship in the oneness of purpose that we have. And so every local church has one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Godfather of all, and we also have an interest in the purposes that God has for us, and that's why this epistle says what it says, where it says, with all that in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours, here in the second verse of 1 Corinthians. And of course, the Corinthians needed to hear that, because not only had they failed to realize their unity of purpose with other churches in every place, but they even fail, you'll see as we look through the epistle, they fail to realize their own unity of purpose inside their own local church. And isn't it interesting that God picks a church like Corinth to write about for our benefit, where it has nothing but immense problems and difficulties of of every sort. And that's what we're going to spend our next few weeks looking at, the serious problems that compose the atmosphere of the Corinthian church. Now, the Corinthian church is written next to the Tretus of Romans because I believe it's put here in the canon of Scripture because it's there to correct us back to the doctrinal admonitions of Romans, which we've just finished. We had great exhortation in Romans from the beginning of the 12th verse to the end of the chapter to act on the basis of faith alone, to act according to the proportion of faith, to act in Christian love one toward another, to be of one mind with one another, all things that are demonstrable failures in the Corinthian church. And so we see the epistle to the Corinthians, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, as we might just put it this way, as a slap on the side of the head to we Christians who will not follow and implement the exhortations of the book of Romans, who allow our doctrine to be the book of Romans, but don't line our practices up with that doctrine. And so here to slap us alongside the head and get us back to the straight and narrow is written 1 Corinthians, really, and 2 Corinthians. Now he read here in verses 4 through 9, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because this is an apostolic church, because this is a charismatic church, that is to say, this is a church founded and operating based on the charismatic gifts, the obvious and open gifts of the Spirit, including gifts of knowledge and gifts of prophecy 
and gifts of speaking in tongues, we're going to see that he ministers to them as they are to minister those gifts. In other words, he said, my desire is that you wouldn't be behind in any spiritual gift, that these gifts would operate, and we'll see in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters, really the, really especially the 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters of this epistle, that he's going to regulate these spiritual gifts as they've let them get out of line. But his desire is that they would come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say that every church is to abide with an agenda that has as its main focus the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of our Lord. And this is something that had been lost in Christianity until relatively recently. Most of us don't have a good sense of history, and we don't realize that the churches of God had nearly forsaken entirely the thought of the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming until perhaps the last couple hundred years, where it has become a theme really resurrected in the context of the local church. But it should be preeminent in our thoughts that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, and how ought we conduct ourselves in light of his coming. And, of course, his desire, the apostle's desire, is one who lays his life down for the benefit of the sheep. He's a good example of a faithful shepherd. And his own interest and his own agenda and his own enrichment is on the back burner, if it's on his burners at all. But his desire is to enrich the believers in every way, but especially in all utterance and knowledge as they wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, at his second coming, and here now he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8, who shall also establish you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to stop here and say this is the one hope of our calling right here. The apostle lays it right out the beginning of this epistle. He lays it out in many other places in the scripture, and really in some way in every single epistle. This is something that if you ask the Christian, what is your hope? They'll scarcely answer this. But this is the one hope of every Christian. Not the one reality that we already have, but the one hope that we have, that we would be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ's desire through the local church, through the ministry of the local church, is to continue to establish, that's what the word confirm means, who shall also confirm or establish you, just as the apostle is trying to establish the testimony of Jesus Christ in the local church, he says the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to confirm or establish you until the end in order that you would have this blamelessness in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you, the book of Romans taught us this, will appear at the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive good or evil for the things done in the body. Now, you're going to appear one of two ways at that time. You will either appear ashamed as the Apostle John said, we don't want to shrink back from him, but be bold in that day. You will either appear at the judgment seat of Christ ashamed and shrinking back and fearful and scared because you've conducted a shameful Christian life, or you will appear in that day bold and with great freedom of speech and blameless 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to be blameless. I don't want to just be blameless in that day. I want to be blameless in this day. It is possible today to be blameless without being sinless. In fact, not only is it possible, but for an elder or a deacon in a local church, it is an absolute requirement that you be blameless today. Not impeccable, but blameless. That is to say, having consistently cleared yourself in every way of your fault and living a good conscience before God. It is the hope of every Christian, it is the necessity of every Christian leader that we would live our lives as those blameless before the Lord. Now, finally, we will all appear before the judgment seat. And in that day, if we'll be blameless in that day, we'll receive a reward. In fact, that day is to be our preoccupation. And now it tells us in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Don't worry. Your faithlessness is met with the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he can bring you into that condition at his judgment seat. Well, we'll take up just a little bit more when we come back. Please stay tuned after this brief message. We'll just read beginning with verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which were of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you says, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Now we have here in verses 10 through 16, we have a discussion of the divisions that are extant in Corinth. And he launches right into them. And he says, listen, brothers and sisters, you are to be of the same mind. This is what we read in the book of Romans, that we have one mind. And it says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you would speak the same thing. You shouldn't be saying different things. You should speak the same thing. There would be no divisions or schisms among you. Now, later we're going to find out in 2 Corinthians that there shouldn't be any schisms, but that there have to be schisms, that schisms need to demonstrate who it is that's approved. But here we find the Corinthians splitting up into four camps, the name of each camp having to do with no one who is schismatic with the other. It says, he says, I would have you to be undivided, to be saying the same things, to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment or the same opinion. Now, you may say, well, there's room for different opinions. Well, there's only room for different opinions where there's no instruction in the Scripture. But where there's instruction in the Scripture, if we have different opinions, we can have this judgment about that. We're either both wrong or one of us is wrong. 
we can't have two opinions about what the scriptures say and what course we're supposed to take in the Christian life except we're both wrong or one of us is wrong. And do you know today, if you're just to say that statement, if you just to make if you just make that statement, say, listen, we disagree here, so one of us is wrong or we're both wrong, people will contend you on that, despite the fact that there can't be any other conclusion than that one. And we have this pathetic statement that we make. Doesn't it make you sick? Makes me sick every time I hear it. Well, let's agree to disagree. Well, what kind of a stupid statement is that? Why don't we just flat disagree as opposed to agree to disagree? Well, just a stupid statement to say, no, let's not be perfectly joined together. Let's not be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Let's be of different minds and practice politeness with one another. Or as one friend of mine calls it, cordialism. Let's just practice a phony baloney affection and say, well, we agree to disagree. There is not room for different opinions in matters of the faith or direction of the local church. In fact, once there is a difference of opinion, we should see to it that we're of the same mind and of the same judgment and come to the same conclusion. And a church, as soon as it decides to vote, and have majority rule, I can assure you, that is the time when a church has committed itself to live with schism. It just ought not to be. We ought to be unanimous in matters of the faith and of the same mind and the same judgment. And we can wait for that to happen and recognize our condition before the Lord when it doesn't happen. Because look at the condition that these people were in. It said, he writes in verse 11, It's been declared to me of you, my brethren, by them which were from Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, very possibly these traveled to Ephesus and told him about it, here of this household of Chloe, and said that the Corinthians are having these strivings. No surprise, you can see that there are people, you can see by their, by their old behavior, where they beat a man at the judgment seat, for example, that this is a community used to fighting. They know how to fight. They go about doing it very, very well. They have their own ways of raising their contentions. Now, maybe you're in a church that's good at fighting. Maybe you're around a group of brothers and sisters that they know how to fight and they've been doing it for years. Well, there's a time when it has to stop. And by the way, notice that he says, Now I say that every one of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and another I'm of Christ. These are four different groups. One says they're of Paul. Well, Paul doesn't approve of that. Paul did not approve of somebody being after him as against Peter, or after him as against Apollos, or after him as against Christ. You couldn't be one who followed the Apostle Paul, who followed Christ, and somehow be divided against those who follow Christ. It's just not possible. And so he takes up now, and this is, of course, the graciousness of the Apostle Paul. He's not going to talk about these others as if there's a problem between himself and Peter, or as if there's a problem between himself and Apollos, or, God forbid, that there's a problem between himself and Christ. He just mentions this, is Christ divided? And, of course, the answer is no. And then he said, was Paul crucified for you? You cannot be a follower of the Apostle Paul as opposed to a follower of Jesus Christ. He said, that's just not possible. I wasn't crucified for you. And the Lord Jesus Christ is one body and one Lord. He himself is not divided. 
Now, he also says that he didn't baptize anybody in his own name. And apparently, there's some oh, uh, some kind of contest here about who was baptized the best, maybe. Baptism, of course, a Christian practice, immersion in water, transition between water baptism that John taught and Christian baptism. And he said, uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And now he says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you hardly, except for Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. Because if I'd have baptized any more of you, you would be claiming that the one who baptized you somehow has a particular party sway with you, or that you maybe got a better or worse baptism. He said, so I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. The way that you're conducting yourselves with your bickering and your poor behavior and your divisions, somebody would say that I baptized in my own name and not in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that somehow the water baptism that I do is my own little deal. And of course, the apostle was accused of having his own deal and not uh, being associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it was one of the many accusations against him. But here he said, I baptized you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't baptize in my own name. And of course, neither did anybody else of these. He's not in unapproving connection with Apollos. He approved of Apollos traveling to Corinth and ministering among those brethren and sisters. And now he says, but I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you or you would use that as some kind of, of an argument. Apparently, they were using something like that as an argument. And now he says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, some have said that the Apostle Paul, therefore, doesn't really approve of baptism. That's not it at all. He just pointed out that his purpose was not in the establishing work, as it was, in the starting work. The starting work. The Apostle Paul in Corinth, came to start the church. The apostle Apollos came, and he also was an apostle, not like Paul insofar as he was not one who was sent by the Lord personally and didn't have the special revelations given to the apostle Paul, but he was also doing that apostolic, early apostolic work, and he was sent to Corinth from Ephesus to help establish the Corinthian church. And Paul's whole point here is that these are working together. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, these each have their own work together. They're one in Christ. They may have different works assigned to them, different areas to follow, different people to reach, maybe even different functions, but they work together as workmen in Christ. And he said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. My job is to begin, is the beginning work. It's the proclaiming work. And not with the wisdom of words, like the Greeks wanted and like men seem to want, lest the cross of Christ should be of none effect. In fact, he said, I was sent to preach, but my preaching isn't to be grounded in my own personality. It's not to be grounded in my own abilities. It's not to be grounded in the wisdom of men of any kind. And he's saying this idea of party spirit, where you segregate yourself off as one who follows this school of men or that school of men, that is merely the thoughts of men. That is not the power of God, and that is not the way, the apostle said, that I was set. He said, I was sent not to preach with men's wisdom, but I was preaching the power of God. Because otherwise, he says, if it's just man's wisdom, the cross of Christ would be made of none effect. 
Those who teach today that Jesus Christ came to show us a better way to live and he was a great teacher from God miss the main point and that is he came to die for our sins and to be that unique and single sacrifice for all time to save us from our sins. So he says, that's not, I didn't come just to be a teacher or to start up another school of thought whereby I would rival other schools of thought. Neither did Peter come for that reason. Neither did Apollos come for that reason. He came to preach the cross of Jesus Christ. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. He says, I preach foolishness to those who perish, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is a very much of a restatement of what he says in Romans chapter 1, which is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. We've said it before, but it bears saying again, that one of the purposes that God has in the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, that one of the purposes of his testimony is to shame the wise of this world and to make sure that there is no boasting before him that he would get all of the glory. We have now here 1 Corinthians verse 19 and 20 and following. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of the preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but to unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And here's what the apostle's saying in a nutshell. He's saying, here's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is that by wisdom the world would not know God. This is God's wisdom. God's wisdom is that by man's wisdom the world will not know God. But instead he's going to take the foolishness of the preaching to save those who believe. You want to know why we're on the internet and on the radio at BibleStudy.net? Well, it's the foolishness of the preaching. This is the instrumentality that God has used to put to shame the wisdom of the wise. He is elected to save those who believe by the preaching of the word. Because why? Well, Jews seek after a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. And neither of those things will bring salvation to either one. God will give the Jews a sign, they won't believe. God will give the Greeks wisdom, they won't believe. But instead, he preaches Christ crucified, Jesus Christ dying for your sins. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. The Jews stumble over this. The stone the Jews stumbled over, he's the chief head of the corner. The Jews stumble over the crucified Christ. They refuse to accept a Messiah who dies for their sins. It stumbles them. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. The Greeks prefer a hero. The Greeks prefer a better-looking Savior. The Greeks prefer a more heroic figure than one who dies for their sins. So, neither the wisdom of the Jew nor the wisdom of the Greek is honored by God, but instead he brings the foolishness of the preaching to take their wisdom to nothingness, that God may get all the glory. 
So he says, but we preach Christ crucified, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 1, unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, friends, that's God's purpose in Christ. It's too great a purpose, too grand a purpose, too all-encompassing a purpose for us as believers to break down and become divided and decide to start some party named after men. For we're in Christ, we preach Him crucified, and we hope you continue with us here in the study of 1 Corinthians so that we can kind of sort ourselves out and get right back on the right track to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you till next time.